This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guests this week are Laura Anderson and Ryan Peck from the Religious Trauma Institute. This is a great extended conversation discussing how they approach religious trauma from a clinical perspective. Since this is a longer conversation, I'll keep this short. You can support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash expangelicalpod or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by Jake Lewis. Thank you very much, Jake. Let's get into it. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Exvangelical. My guests this week are Laura Anderson and Brian Peck from the Religious Trauma Institute. Both of them are licensed therapists. I will put their accreditations in the show notes, but I'm very excited to have both of them on the show. Welcome to the show, Laura and Brian. Hi, thanks so much for having us. So great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. I do want to start where we usually start with all of our guests and just get a good sense for, for each of you what your background is. You've made this part of your career addressing religious trauma, but before we get to that part of the conversation, I'd love to just hear a little bit about what your experiences were in religion that led you to this type of work. Um, yeah, so I grew up in what's called the Evangelical mm-hmm. Free Church of America, and the way that I describe it to people so that they can have kind of an understanding is that it is the hellfire and brimstone of Southern Baptists combined with the rigidity of Church of Christ, combined with the stoicism of Lutheranism, <laughs> and then Reformed theology. <laughs> so, so just a lot of fun. It's a, it's just a, a just a few yeah, it's fun. like a mix of shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I'm sure, like many of your guests, I cannot remember a time where I did not have that sort of influence in my life. And um, what was a little unique for me is towards the the later part of my elementary years and yeah, into my middle school years, my dad took a position as a director at an evangelical free church camp. And so that's actually where I spent the majority of my growing up years um, was a camp kid, which in some ways there were some good things about it. I'd had some access to things that I know I took for granted that now I wish I could live on a lake. Um, things like that. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I grew up at a camp. Um, I did go to a public school, but interestingly, this is something I've been reflecting on. Uh, Minnesota in general has a fairly decent education system. And so private schools, homeschooling wasn't so much of a thing because there was just a lot of opportunities that people could take advantage Mm -hmm. of. But I remember in middle school um, really wanting to be homeschooled because I was so afraid of the influences that were around me. And I begged my parents for probably at least a full school year to consider homeschooling me so that I wouldn't have these negative influences and couldn't be pulled down or pulled away from God and and those Mm. sorts of things. So so I grew up in all of that. Um, When I graduated from high school, I believed that I, my, my mission in life was to be a wife and a mother. And I thought having probably eight children would be a good idea. <laughs> Very specific <laughs> um, number. <laughs> yeah, I was like two or eight. Nowhere in between <laughs> I wanted to do those two. I'm not sure why that happened. Yeah, and so I kind of, because of that, really didn't have a lot of like educational aspirations. 
I, I was very intelligent and graduated at the top of my class and had a lot of scholarships for places to go for school, but just um, for various reasons, because I wasn't allowed to, and then also what I thought were my own personal reasons, decided, no, it's not going to be necessary to get an education if if all I'm going to do is be a wife and a mother. Um, so I went to a community college to pass the time and uh, ended up starting to work at the church that I grew up in. I worked in the youth department first as a volunteer and then was hired on as a ministry coordinator and then um, unofficially a director. So I was doing the work of the director, not being paid for it, but also because I was a woman was not allowed to really actually hold that title um, and through a series of very abusive, spiritually abusive, religiously abusive circumstances, ended up quitting my job there. And I would say that was the beginning of my deconstruction. Um, there was a lot that went on that I didn't, that didn't sit right with me, but I wasn't able to really label it. I couldn't, mm-hmm. uh, I couldn't totally understand what was going on. I just knew that it wasn't right, but I also was not in a position to question anything and I had a four-year degree from a Christian college. And so I was like, I I don't even have any skills to do anything. So after I after I quit my position at the church, I had actually helped to move to Minneapolis, which was, I was in northern Minnesota, wanted to move to the Twin Cities and was actually kind of stopped from moving. Um, the pastors at the church called all of the places that I'd been applying to for jobs in schools and basically blacklisted me and said, Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was it was really crazy. I couldn't figure it out at the time. I was like, why did I not get into these schools or not get into uh, get, you know, second and third interviews with these places and come to find out that they had contacted the places and Wow. Yeah, yeah, said that that I wasn't fit to work there for various reasons or fit to go to school. So, I was stuck in northern Minnesota and so I ended up taking a position at a community college. Um, but it gave me enough space away from like being really, really heavy in the church to be able to um, realize I wanted to go back to school, which is what (laughs) got me looking at master's degree programs. And I knew I wanted to do something with therapy. It was something that came very naturally to me. So I picked Liberty University to go Mm -hmm. to, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, you know, really, really solid choice. Um, actually, I have nothing against the educational experience I had there, um, but it was actually through that that uh, process that I really did start to deconstruct my faith. Um, quite literally, the first day of class, there was something that one of the professors said, and it just hit me in such a way where I understood that the things that I had been taught, there was maybe more to the story. And so through that process, I... Um, I continued to start asking questions, but knowing that I wasn't able to fully explore that until I would move out of the community, um, there just wasn't um, capacity to do that. And so I waited until after I graduated from Liberty and um, made a decision to move to Nashville, Tennessee, which is where I'm at right now. And um, that is what allowed me the space to both deconstruct, deconvert, and figure out kind of who I was as a person and then also getting further into therapy with my own private practice and eventually specializing Mm -hmm. in complex trauma with religious trauma being one of my specialties underneath that. So that's the tip of the iceberg story. (laughs) 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 Yeah. And I think just picking up on a couple of items from that, I mean, two of the things that, that stood out is like, 
not having the vocabulary at the time when you're experiencing these things and also not having the space, both of which are really, really valuable Mm -hmm. and necessary. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm, yeah. I was just sort of processing this just individually, let alone from a professional mm-hmm. perspective. Yeah, it, you know, it feels really cliche to say, oh, I moved away from home and that's where I started questioning my faith. Uh, but in fact, that's exactly what needed to happen. Even though when I moved mm-hmm. from home, I started going to a Southern Baptist church and got like heavily involved in the worship team and and those sorts of things, there was enough departure from the familiarity and the lifestyle of everything I had grown up in that at least I was able to start asking questions. And interestingly enough, I was um, in a relationship at the time that was actually quite abusive. But at that very beginning stage, he allowed me space to ask questions that nobody had ever let me ask before. They would say, you know, you're not allowed to ask questions or you're not allowed allowed to think about those things that's dangerous that's sinful and and as much as there's a lot of bad stuff that happened in that relationship I will always be so thankful for that brief period of time where those questions were allowed and that could really start to Mm -hmm. kind of open my eyes to be able to see that I think that the things that I've grown up with are not necessarily the things that are are completely true like I was told yeah Thank you, Laura, for, for sharing that bit about your life. Brian, how did that part of your, your journey start for you? Yeah, so um, similar to Laura's story, I, um, I actually do have an early childhood memory of not being in a Christian family because my, my, my father had a backslidden um, in, when I was born, right before, before I was born. And then when I was about three or four, um, he re- recommitted his life to Christ. And my mom had never been part of the church. And so this, this was a big shift in our family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remember a day when we had TV in the house. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that was kind of like, um, yeah, an early memory. And then after that, it was it was all church. And so I guess I come from a, a long line of church splints and splinters within the conservative holiness movement. Um, my grandmother, uh, my, my dad's mom, uh, left the um, the Free Methodist when they began to allow members to wear wedding rings, um, and jewelry was forbidden and not okay, and so um, yeah. left that. And then um, my first um, kind of experience in church was within the Allegheny Wesleyan Methodist Church. Um, yeah. Then also spent some time with the Pilgrim Holiness and God's Missionary. Um, went to one year of Bible college um, at Penview Bible Institute, which is a small. Um, Bible College in uh, Pennsylvania. Is that a Wesleyan college or is that affiliated? So, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's it's part of the God's Missionary Church. Um, but yeah, conservative holiness. And I think what these groups had in common for folks who aren't as familiar with this, these small splinter groups um, is that there was this belief in a, a second blessing um, where they claimed that you know, you'd have a second work of grace subsequent mm-hmm. to salvation where you died to self in the sinful mm-hmm. nature and you were sanctified and you became holy. And so there was just a really strong emphasis on kind of outdoing each other in terms of how holy can you <laughs> I be? went to Indiana. I went to Indiana Wesleyan, so. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're familiar. Yeah, you know the doctrine at least. Yeah, we would have considered um, you all to be a bit, you know, too liberal for us um, because we were, you know, still wearing you know, I, I wasn't permitted to wear short sleeve shirts as a kid, oh, um, wow. shorts, yeah. you know, women had to, you know, wear their hair up, not cut their hair, wear dresses. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So yeah, it was an interesting kind of mix of um, Wesleyan theology, uh, but with very, very strict morality codes, I guess, is what they were, were trying to achieve. And so, yeah, yeah. so I, I went to, um, you know, Christian school, um, K through 12, and made it through one year Bible college before it started to kind of um, unravel for me. Mm-hmm. Between high school, I think the, the thing that was probably most formative and um, kind of colored my um, experience with inside religion was um, after high school, I, I just didn't think I could do college because, you know, you go to a very small Christian school and you feel <laughs> unprepared. And so I was kind of floundering a bit. Um, my family at that time moved from Ohio um, to central Pennsylvania. And I, and I met this really charismatic pastor of a very small church who was going to change the world. And he said all the right things mm. <laughs> to engage a kind of um, a bit aimless um, teenager. And and so I was really taken in um, by what he was saying and what he was going to do. And um, and so then actually, I um, that was before I went to Bible college, but um, I started to travel the world with this person, um, went to China, the Philippines, uh, Honduras, and just doing various, you know, we smuggled Bibles into China because that was a very, <laughs> wow. very, you know, scary thing to do. And um Looking back, it was a bit silly um, because you just put Bibles in your suitcase <laughs> and you, you know, went through customs. But um, but it was like it's very you know um, courageous thing to do. And um, kind of looking back now, it, it's it's really obvious to me that I was being groomed by this um, person. And um, found out later that um, several young men were exploited by him oh, um, throughout his ministry as well. And so so yeah, that that really. Um, made me question and think about, you know, the role of religion in, in my life. Um, after one year of Bible college, I started to ask questions and have doubts through that experience. Um, I, I started going to Penn State part-time, just like one class a semester in the evenings, and I met some non-believers, and they weren't the scary, immoral, wicked humans that I thought they would be. And <laughs> right. so then I began to question like, hmm, like what's, what's going on here? Um, if my church has lied to me about this, you know, what else are they withholding from me? And honestly, I think one of the last straws for me was um, in a protest literature class as I was beginning to kind of confront how my religious and political beliefs were harming my fellow classmates who were, um, most of whom were from marginalized groups. And, um, I came to understand that I could um, really double down on my beliefs and maintain my religious beliefs where I could be the compassionate human that I wanted to be in the world. Mm. And, um, but I couldn't do both. And so um, that really um, w- was a crossroads for me. And uh, fortunately in my experience, you know, compassion won out, but yeah, that's kind of the journey that, that I've been on uh, from there. There was several years after that where I was, you know, finally coming to a place where I was okay, um, not being part of the church. Um, and then a, a move um, really gave me the space to begin to process my own experience without the, the added pressure of a, a local community. And so, um, yeah, I think that that really um, gave me the space to explore who I wanted to be as well. Yeah. And did either of you try other expressions of Christianity, like my either more progressive ones or more mainline ones? Like having had so many of these conversations, it seems like it's very a very individual choice, but some people have a very clean sort of, well, not clean, but a, a very decisive break 
and some people have either things shift or what have you into a different type of religiosity or connection to a different type of their faith of origin, so to speak. Did either of you have any of that sort of experience? For me personally, I, um, I credit the fundamentalism that I grew up in (laughs) (laughs) um, for uh, my kind of inability at that point to transition to a progressive form of Christianity. I, I went to a few different churches. I tried a few things out. Um, but I grew up believing that if you, you know, were a progressive Christian, you might as well be an atheist <laughs> right. because, you know, you, you were all going to hell, right? right? Yeah. And so, um, and so I, I think in some ways that made it difficult for me to explore. And, and, and I often wonder what my experience would have been like if there was more of a gradual transition and, and I was able to find uh, a form of Christianity that, uh, that allowed me to be the compassionate person I wanted to mm-hmm. be, for instance. Um, you know, how long I would have maintained my faith. Uh, I mean, there were some big questions that I, I, I think probably would have um, gone unanswered and would, would, I would still end up where mm-hmm. I'm at today. Um, but I think that that process would have been uh, a bit more protracted if, if, if I had not grown up in such a rigid black and white way of viewing Christianity. Right. And Laura, what about you? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question and something actually I've been thinking about oh, quite frequently lately. Um, I'm in school to get my PhD and I'm writing my dissertation currently. And so one of the things that I'm doing is reviewing my old journals from the last several years um, as they are part of my data. Mm-hmm. I think what I what I thought was happening is not what was actually happening. I thought that I had, you know, a pretty clean break. And as I've read my journals, um, I was like, oh, no, there actually was quite a long period of time where I was really trying to make things fit and to piece things together into a very progressive, liberal view of God. But I do remember a very specific moment that I came to, and I liken it to being in a relationship with a, a domestically violent partner where this this moment comes and you go, oh my gosh, I have tried and tried and tried and tried all of these times and you've never shown up for me and you've never changed and you're never going to. And now I'm done. And, and there was that moment that happened to me. And I, I work with a lot of intimate partner violence and that is part of my own story. And it's interesting that that happened with my ex-partner where there was a moment that that came and I said, we are done. You need to get out of our home. And there was a moment like that. I had that with God too, where I thought you are not real. You have never answered me. You have never um, shown up in the way that you said you were supposed to. I followed the rules. I tried, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. And, and you've never come through for me and I cannot do it anymore. And similar to a domestically violent or intimate partner violence relationship it was over in that moment. There was no going back. There wasn't um, a conversation of, can we get back together? It's that Taylor Swift song. We are never, ever getting back together. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so it became more about, um, it became more about the impact of that relationship. Mm -hmm. So having to deconstruct, like what was the impact of this relationship with this God that was, in my experience, rather abusive. The teachings, the the fundamentals, the who God was, um, and so 
once that happened, it, it took things in a very different direction, which is where I was going anyways, I think. Mm -hmm. But it was there was a definite moment that I had where I kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, saw the light and um, and, and everything changed yeah. for me. I appreciate yeah. both of your responses. I, I, I do want to be clear that I don't contribute a value and it's not this isn't some sort of like weird evangelical trick mm -hmm. where I'm trying to get you like, <laughs> you know, to to like ascribe something to the divine. It's more I, I just think yeah. that it's so yeah. uh, I think it's a, it's it's valuable for people to to hear different responses to that question. Yeah. Just because people's sure. journeys, mm -hmm. just as for both of you, you know, they vary. And but there's there's value in being able to look back whenever you do have the privilege and and the opportunity to do that and have some you know perspective on your prior experience. Just because, yeah, you know, some people might end up there, and some people because of their traumas and because of all these other things can't get there, and both in my estimation, uh, are valid. Uh, but I, I really appreciate you both answering that question candidly just because I do think it is um, really helpful for listeners to to be able to hear different answers to that. Mm -hmm. Blake, if, if I can just um, add uh, another piece to sure. my story as well. I, I, I left um, religion um, long before I left fundamentalism or, or that way of thinking. And so... I think, um, you know, in, in the work that I do with, with folks who are going through a, that, that, that transition, um, there's often a um, kind of intellectual process that happens where they read lots of apologetics and counter-apologetics and they, you know, do the research and it, they come to kind of a, a cognitive or mental conclusion, mm -hmm. um, an intellectual conclusion that this no longer works for me. Um, but that kind of more um, visceral experience, that felt sense experience, and also this kind of way of thinking, just swapping out, you know, one set of beliefs for another set of beliefs, but still interacting with those beliefs in this very rigid and fundamentalist sort of way, you know, that way of thinking, not just what we, we think is different, but how we're thinking um, persisted for me for, for several years. And in fact, um, in graduate school, my, my wife said to me, um, she had seen me at the kind of the tail end of my um, deconstruction process, and she said, "Hey, Brian, you're still a fundamentalist. You're just fundamentalist about different things now." And I had I'd kind of swung to a very progressive um, view of the world, and I could defend my my new beliefs as being objectively healthier for me and better for society. And yet, how I was wielding them and weaponizing them and holding tightly to them mm -hmm. um, was still very restricting and, and and really ultimately unhealthy for me. And and that really began a, a journey of how do I learn how to think differently? Right. Not just um, you know what my beliefs are, but like the, the process of holding lightly to things and being comfortable with uncertainty and increasing psychological flexibility and um and so like that process um, has been an ongoing process and i still catch myself mm -hmm. on occasion um having a more of a fundamentalist response to an issue and i have to kind of like well okay <laughs> there's that old pattern again <laughs> yeah um how can i bring a bit of compassion flexibility uh new perspective to that and so um i think um, i'm pointing that out because i i see it's, it's so often in the work that i do where a person will make that transition, but then still um, kind of feel stuck inside of these old ways of thinking. And there's just so much suffering um, connected to that experience. Yeah, that's a that's a very, very, very valuable point. 
and because yeah there there are things about certain religious practices that might be valuable um even if you can detach them from a harmful religious belief you're you're right like seeing discourse online you do see those those things happen Mm -hmm. and people that are clearly like in the midst of a lot of personal anguish Mm-hmm. And sometimes, like you said, the lever, the pedestal just swings the other way, mm-hmm. and you yeah, you bring sure. that same yeah. zeal to, <laughs> to a different right, yeah, point of view. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's very true. What led you to study this professionally, and what connected both of you to do this venture that specifically focuses on religious trauma? Yeah. Um... Well, I'm actually going to give you a little credit, Blake. Um, I <laughs> happened to, uh, you know, podcasting. <laughs> that is that is what um, gave me the language to understand that my experience was not isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, I did start deconstructing many, many years ago. So um, I would say even before I started at Liberty, so probably 13 to 15 years ago. But it was a different world back then. There wasn't social media. There was not kind of this communal acceptance of people are having these experiences. So when I actually left the church, when I stopped going to church, which was roughly eight years ago, I think, I was the only person that I knew that was going through this. And about a year, not quite a year later, two other people from the church, uh, husband and wife, uh, also left. And it's like we had these secret meetings <laughs> over margaritas a few times a month trying to figure out what the hell had just happened to I us. know those meetings. <laughs> yeah. um, and so as that happened, um, you know, again, we were still like this secret little community. And interestingly, I don't know if you all have watched the show Big Love. Um, we watched on Amazon Prime. <laughs> we were kind of like, oh my gosh, like this is like, we were in this like cult-like religion and all these sorts of things and, and realizing like, maybe this was much bigger than us. You know, maybe this was not just this really tiny isolated experience, but that other people had, um, had experience, but it was still, like I said, very on the down low. And honestly, I, um, somebody had introduced me to the liturgist podcast Mm -hmm. and I heard Jamie Lee Finch, uh, share a poem and I happened to Google her name in uh, I uh, Apple Podcasts, and I stumbled across your podcast. Oh, nice. And I was like, oh, my <laughs> gosh, there's a podcast for all these people that are going through the same thing. Uh, so I reached out to Jamie because she lives here in Nashville also. And we actually did some work together but developed a friendship outside of that. But that's really when um, – when things started to take off in a professional sense, I, I knew that I was far enough along in my own healing journey, both from religious trauma as well as some other trauma that I had experienced, that I knew I could hold that space. And clients were like coming to me and just talking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't advertising that way or anything. And um, all of that kind of led me to um, this past summer where I was, um, like I said, I'm getting my PhD and within that you have to do like a clinical practicum. When you're in a PhD program, you have a lot of free reign over what that actually looks like. Mm-hmm. And so rather than um, doing client work, because as I, I do that professionally, I thought, well, I'm going to do something differently. 
And um, I knew religious trauma was a widely uh, growing field, and I knew there was no resources that were connected to it. And I knew that there was not a lot for mental health professionals in terms of understanding what religious trauma was. And I thought, I am one person. I need other people to be trained Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I I can't do this on my own, and I don't know of anybody else who's doing it. So I put a call out on Twitter And I just said, hey, if this has been your experience, what would you want a mental health professional to know about your experience or how they could help you in the therapeutic process or like just what are the important things? And I thought I would get like 10, 15 responses and I got hundreds. Wow. And it was just, it was overwhelming. Um, Also, that was like my introduction to social media. I'd never really done it (laughs) until that point. Yeah. Um, Well, that's that's a rough. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Twitter is Um, a wild place. (laughs) Very wild. But it is how I met Brian. Um, Because I noticed this guy started following me and I clicked on the, the profile and he worked with religious trauma also. And so I thought, oh, my gosh, I need to connect to him. He's the only other mental health professional I know. Um, So we started corresponding and um, met up over video a couple times and met with some other clinicians and Mm -hmm. decided we needed to do this on a professional basis. And I think we'd both been kind of thinking of things. And one night I texted him and I said, how about the Religious Trauma Institute? And he's like, this is what I've been waiting for. (laughs) (laughs) That's my side of the story. (laughs) Fill in the pieces. (laughs) Yeah, as as, as far as that piece of it goes, how we we met and came to this idea. Um, I've been working with religious trauma for a while, and um, and especially that that kind of deconversion process. um, I was working in in a mental health clinic for a while and decided to go out on my own so that I could explore this a bit more. And, and that process was um, challenging because uh, I realized as even as I was marketing initially for my private practice, I, I knew what I wanted to focus on, but it felt risky to say it out loud, oh, to yeah. say, you know, I'm focusing on helping folks who are going through a faith transition or, or, or leaving religion or um, have experienced religious trauma. And so mm. when I looked back at my early marketing, I was um, kind of apologizing to the religious folks who might find it. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not. I'm not anti-religion. I'm. I'm. You know. But some folks have been harmed by religion. And then, when I, I finally realized that um, I could speak more plainly to my target audience, let them know I I understand this, um, and I have resources to help you move through this. Mm-hmm. You know, heal and, and and live a life of your own choosing on the other side. I people just started coming to me more and more because they're like, I've been waiting for this. I've, yeah. I've been looking for a therapist and, and I wasn't able to find one. And so, so I've always, um, you know, had a vision of wanting to um, kind of take this to the next level, have, um, you know, m- more therapists get involved. And, and so I started a small private Facebook group uh, for therapists working with religious trauma. Um, and I, Laura and I were both in that group together as well. Um, and we just began talking. This, it's in some ways, it feels like Religious Trauma Institute is something that's been in the planning stages for four or five years, and it just finally took you know two folks getting together who are really passionate about this and bring um, similar but uh, unique skills to the the table. And with with Lara's um, passion to do that clinical training, um, and and so forth, it just feels like maybe the most effective way to serve um, 
the, the many folks who have experienced um, adverse religious experiences or religi re religious trauma is to work with clinicians who already have a background working with trauma, mm -hmm. uh, catch them up to speed on what's unique about the religious trauma experience, but then um, you're not kind of starting from scratch. Um, you already have um, the ability to work with trauma uh, from a mental health perspective, and, and you, d you just need a, a few additional resources. And so um, our vision initially is to um, provide those clinical trainings. And then from there, we have, you know, three or four other um, stages <laughs> um, in, in our lineup here with for the Institute. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how we got here. That's great. I was excited to see it bubble up within the spheres that, that we're all in online and, and see that there is this professional focus on this area because seeking out a therapist or a counselor, I think people will are already and will continue to be looking specifically for that term, you know, of yeah. religious trauma just because it is – Thanks to so mu so much social media stuff and and everything else, it is becoming more visible than it than it was in the past, mm -hmm. and that it is mm -hmm. such a significant part of our lives. Uh, I think yeah. for so long, it was either you were religious or you weren't, and then there was no yeah. clear yeah. understanding of people moving between the two, like within mm -hmm. life, yeah. uh, and all yeah. the the bad shit that can happen, and and all the, yeah, the trauma sure. that can happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think the question of what is trauma is absolutely the perfect uh, question to start with. We we get asked a lot what is religious trauma, and what we have really tried to kind of let people know is that in order to understand religious trauma, you have to understand trauma. And so the the very very simple definition of trauma that I give to people is that trauma is not the thing that happened to you, but it is the body or nervous system's response to the thing that happened to mm -hmm. you. And I think that's really important to recognize because um, culturally or colloquially we have this idea that trauma is this thing or this event or this moment, this experience that happens. And if that were true, then there should be things that are always traumatic all the time for every single person. Also, if that were true, we should be able to timestamp trauma mm -hmm. and say, this is this thing that happened, but it's in the past and I'm here in the present now. So I'm good. That's over. We're done. I'm safe now. And what we know, both from research and anecdotally speaking, so our lived experience is that that's not how trauma works. Mm -hmm. Um, and what is traumatic for one person may or may not be traumatic for another person. There's a lot of subjectivity in there. So trauma is not that it is a thing or an experience or an event that happens. Rather, it is our bodies or our nervous system's response to that thing that happened. Mm. Yeah. That distinction that you're making is is so important because um, 
you know, the research around trauma is, is fairly new. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. we had, you know, shell shock um, for, you know, Vietnam vets. And that's when we started to realize that there's this lingering effect mm -hmm. uh, for folks who have experienced, um, you know, something that overwhelmed their nervous system. And if we, like Laura's saying, if, if we just focus on the event itself, then um, we, we start to make assumptions about what should or shouldn't be traumatizing. But when we look at it in, in this um, more clinical sense, um, it's a combination of your internal and external resources and then how much of a demand that event places on your system. Mm -hmm. And also, um, you know, we're, we're beginning to realize that um, trauma isn't like this big event that happened always. Like there is yeah. shock trauma, uh, but then there's this, um, you know, more complex trauma, developmental trauma, this trauma that happens over a period of time, these maybe um, events that wouldn't seem significant on their own, but over time, this sense of, of not having your needs met as a child, uh, neglect we're finding um, can be yeah. even more damaging than experiencing some really significant event because of, of how important it is to have that attachment and connection to a, a loving caregiver. Mm -hmm. and, and when you don't have that or when that's uh, disrupted in some way, um, that can have a, a really long-lasting impact. And so I think to, to add to what Laura's saying, I think trauma is often the result of an experience where you needed to do something to defend or protect yourself or to escape to safety, mm -hmm. and you were unable to do that. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's almost like there's your nervous system is, is in this fight or flight response and you need to do something to survive and then the brake is slammed on and you go into mm -hmm. this kind of freeze collapse response. And, and that, that feeling of helplessness mm -hmm. um, in that moment persists until that um, trauma is resolved, until you have some other experience that undermines that sense of powerlessness. Mm -hmm. um, focusing on the event itself misses all of that you know it, yeah. it, it, it's, mm. it, it doesn't allow us to to notice that it's what we need to feel safe and strong and powerful again um, and that's this internal uh, physiological experience mm. um, noticing that trauma lives in our body not in our in right. our mind and, and we can't really think ourselves out of it and, and that's yeah I, yeah I see a lot of um, you know confusion around this in the mm. um, post-religious community because mm -hmm. so much of the um, deconversion process is really focused on the beliefs and um, that kind of intellectual process and and we really kind of discard or uh, dismiss our physical experience and um, you know those doctrines themselves aren't where the trauma lives the trauma lives in this um, mm -hmm. survival response you had when you first learned about hell um, Mm -hmm. You know, otherwise it's just some horrific myth that you, you know, you maybe have heard other stories that were equally terrifying, right. um, but it doesn't have that, um, it doesn't result mm -hmm. in trauma mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. the same way that a religious belief in a context where you feel mm -hmm. um, unsafe and your body's responding um, with that survival response. And so, mm. yeah, that's kind of um, why it's so important to look at it through this trauma lens. Right. I like what you said about if it's not your lived experience and it's just a myth. Like I don't mm -hmm. yeah. people who grew up Christian don't fear like Greek mythologies Tartarus. Yeah. They fear <laughs> <laughs> they fear yeah. they fear yeah. fire and brimstone because that mm -hmm. that's yeah. what was taught. I really yeah. like that. So yeah. how do people learn to recognize that they have trauma or that is there a role in sort of people 
reckoning with the fact that they do have some trauma that they need to address. And how do people start that? Mm. Yeah. So if I can just jump in, because I want to make sure that we fully answer the last question, because you said, well, what is religious trauma? And I think this helps us answer this next question. In a way, the word religious is simply an adjective that is describing the, tr the type of trauma, similar to how we might say like sexual trauma. Um, it, it helps us further define like what is it that we're actually working with so that we know maybe some things that we can expect as well as helping us guide in a course of treatment. So we know if we're working with religious trauma, we're going to have to work on X, Y, and Z that maybe trauma from war we don't have to, or, or vice versa. So I think it's really important. And that helps us then also recognize like, what are some of the symptoms of religious trauma? How do we know if we have it? And so religious trauma is that, is that trauma that stems from our body or nervous systems response to religious messaging, religious events, religious relationships, systems, um, anything in stories in the, in those contexts where our body becomes overwhelmed and is facing real or perceived threats and danger. And I say the word perceived because there doesn't have to be an actual threat or an actual dangerous thing or an actual overwhelming event. It could be the perception of such that puts our body into this place of feeling endangered and needing to find safety through fight, flight, or freeze. And so I, I think that starts to kind of answer like, how do we mm -hmm. know if we have it? And I would say paying attention to what happens in your body when there are those religious uh, messaging or events or relationships or triggers going on, that can often be the first indicator of, hey, something's not quite right here because uh, maybe I even pass by a church and my heart starts racing or I uh, you know, I live in the South and we've got, you know, Christian music is played in all public spaces, you know, and I hear this song and all of a sudden I, I start sweating or, or I have these kind of flashbacks to being in mm -hmm. church and I go, um, and I'm not feeling like I'm here present in this moment and I'm maybe feeling a little bit of fear or, um, it's, I'm feeling something that's not nostalgic and we go, okay, that starts to help us recognize that that maybe this system, maybe these relationships, these beliefs and messages that I've grown up with, my body does not view those as particularly safe. And, and I need to start uh, paying attention to those and or addressing them in a different way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what you're saying is so important. Um, often folks who have experienced religious trauma um, don't recognize it as such. I think Blake, yeah. you're alluding to that. And mm -hmm. and because we, we think of trauma as, well, you know, nothing super bad happened to me. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I have clients sitting in my office, you know, all the time who will describe horrific events um, mm -hmm. where I'm like, oh, my God, like, that's like just devastating. As an eight-year-old, how did you survive mm -hmm. that? that? That's my response. And their response is, is more like, well, it wasn't that bad. You know, that's just how it was in my house. Right. Um, that, that's yeah. just what I'm used to. And, and so... Um, I, I think sometimes um, having language and understanding of trauma can be really helpful, um, but it can also um, make people will attach it to this other understanding of trauma. Um, and they might say, well, no, I don't have religious trauma because I didn't experience, you know, I wasn't, you know, sexually abused by a clergy member. And, and so because of that, we're, we're introducing this, this term adverse religious experience mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. where 
this is something that um, the, the definition, the working definition, we're still revising it, is any experience of a religious belief, practice, or structure that undermines an individual's sense of safety or autonomy mm -hmm. and or negatively impacts their physical, social, emotional, relational, or psychological well-being. Mm -hmm. And when we begin to look at our religious experience through that lens, um, when I was, um, you know, expected to behave a certain way or else I wouldn't be accepted by the group, um, when there were, you know, just adversive experiences um, where I didn't feel safe or okay um, in the group, um, we can see how those um, create a, a context or conditions for trauma mm -hmm. to, to, mm -hmm. to, to be experienced. And so I think um, when we're talking about religious trauma, we want to kind of broaden it out a bit to include all these yeah. other experiences um, because a combination of those um, maybe smaller experiences mm -hmm. still results in this kind of felt sense. And, and what, what Laura is um, pointing out as well, how do we know whether we have this or not? If we tune into our physiological responses, we begin to understand, you know, I'm bracing because I feel like I'm about to be like right. hurt. Mm. Um, and why is that? Well, because my body um, knows that that wasn't safe for me before. And, and I'm, I'm having that re reaction to it in, in, in the present moment. And so inside of a lot of religious groups, we, we live inside of our head, right? We live inside of the beliefs and the ideas. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're even told, you know, don't trust your body. Um, your right. body is sinful and evil. And, mm -hmm. and so we, we lose contact with th this source of information about the world. And our nervous system is constantly assessing for cues of safety or cues of, of, mm -hmm. of threat. And if we're if we're not able to tune in and pay attention to that, and we dismiss it with you know ideas or beliefs or doctrines, then then we don't realize um, how big of an impact it's having, mm -hmm. and, and often we don't realize it until it's gone. Mm -hmm. um, when when we start to realize like oh that weight is lifted, like wow that was heavy, um, and so yeah I think that that tuning into that physiological experience is is, yeah. is just so so important. Yeah, and if I can just add one other thing to that, that's what Brian's talking about is why it is so important to understand trauma as subjective um, and not compare, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's so easy. And this happens in the church all the time. Well, you know, just be grateful because you could always have had it worse or there's somebody that's had it worse. And so when we look at trauma through the lens of the nervous system's response to an event, it doesn't mean that you have to be a participant and a witness of this huge catastrophic event, it could be the messaging of if you don't do this or pray this prayer or say this thing, you are going to go to hell. And that can have the same exact physiological response that something like physical assault or sexual violence would have. And so for people that are going, I mean, I don't know, I was just in this bad church and like, is this really that bad? I would say, well, if your nervous system, if your physiology is having a response, then yes. And it's not about having to make my experience better or worse than somebody else's. Um, truth be told, there is always going to be somebody that has a worse experience than us. But the moment that we start comparing that is where shame enters into the, uh, into the scene or the story. And that does nothing to help us heal. So when we can go like, hey, trauma is this and this nervous system response to this thing, um, the, the thing can be anything from um, what I experienced at an altar call in church or clergy sexual abuse or anything in between and outside of that. 
Yeah. Yeah. Speaking primarily of being in evangelical spaces mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where people are taught and conditioned that negative things are either dismissed or sanctified, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So either thank God that something worse didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or thank God this was supposed to happen. <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And yeah. then making the suffering into or the trauma yeah. into something that mm-hmm. is supposed Sanctified. to you're supposed yeah. to be grateful mm-hmm. for. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. I, I think that has been something that a lot of people in these types of spaces or these phases of their lives have a it's it's so valuable to have that information because that information was kept from them for so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean even me, mm-hmm. you know, it's like those those sorts of signals just are lost because you're taught mm-hmm. to not listen mm-hmm. to them. That's yeah. just hearing that from clinical professionals is, is extremely uh, validating, I think, yeah. for, for oh, a lot yeah. of people. I, I wanted to, to add, we, we just, um, we have a survey that, an anonymous survey that folks can take on, on adverse religious experiences that they've had. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we have over 1500 responses already. The, the, yeah. Number the top three um, experiences that people had while they were, you know, having this adverse religious experience were uh, they felt shame. Mm. It's the number one. Um, they felt shame. They felt fear, and then they felt powerless. And we, we think about that that combination within um, any type of you know high demand group. Shame is used a, as a way to maintain group cohesion and to keep people in line. And so. Right. When you're experiencing abuse, when you're, um, you know, having this experience that that's overwhelming your nervous system, you in, in, the, in the thing that you're feeling in that moment is shame. Like I should pray harder. I should do more. I, there's something wrong with me. Um, and, and then a sense of, of, of powerlessness. I think we can't underestimate, um, mm-hmm. you know, what that information is telling us about these experiences. It's not... Um, you know, like I'm rebelling against God or I'm being willful or, or all these other things that, that believers will often try to dismiss our experience. We're saying, no, my, my, my autonomic nervous system um, was responding to this experience um, as if it were something significant enough that um, it felt kind of life-threatening at some level or like I wasn't okay, I wasn't, um, it wasn't, I wasn't safe anymore. And, and, and that sense of, of, of powerlessness often will persist until, like I said, we have um, an experience that undermines that um, or resolves that. And so, um, yeah, I, I think when we, mm. we can easily dismiss, like, well, it's just, you know, a doctrine or an idea. Um, atheists who have never grown up inside of a religious structure will often say things, um, super unhelpful things like, well, you don't believe in hell, so like, why does it still bug you? Or you don't believe <laughs> right. in God, so like, why, why is this fear still there? And it's like, it, it's right. a complete disregard to yeah. kind of our biology as mammals. Um, you don't just give that up because mm-hmm. you no longer believe it. That that physiological experience will, will persist until we, we begin to do that, that healing work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned healing. Um, is that something that can be done if they're in the midst of stress or in the midst of mm. trauma? Um, or is is the sorts of things that we mentioned as far as space and, and time, are those the, sort, the sorts of environmental requirements that someone mm. has to have in order to begin to do this work and start addressing the things that need to be healed? 
So when we talk about trauma and healing from trauma, mm-hmm. the number one, you know, th- okay, I should say, there's no one right way mm-hmm. to go about this. There's a million different modalities and, and ways to heal and practices that are beautiful. It's, it's a very unique and individualized process. But what I will kind of stake my claim in is that there is something about being able to find safety mm-hmm. internally and externally that becomes the foundation yes. that other healing grows out of. Mm-hmm. So to that question of like, can you heal while you're still in the midst of it? Yes, and, and yes, <laughs> it's going to be a lot harder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. You know, if I can, like one thing, um, and I kind of alluded to this earlier. Um, so when I went to Liberty for my master's degree, I recognized very early on, oh, I've got some questions. There's some stuff here that I'm not quite sure of. But intuitively, I knew like I there's a bunch that I really can't explore until after I would leave an environment like this because I I just don't have the space, the safety, the capacity, it's going to be too difficult, too dangerous. Um, But I was able to find small little ways that I could start to change. And and funnily enough, it was like little things in the way I would dress. I would start to wear V-neck shirts. That was a big deal for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I got some pushback, but it wasn't so uncomfortable that it was intolerable. Um, things like I would have a glass of wine again, uncomfortable with people, but not intolerable. So for me or for anybody, yes, there's ways that you can start to make those changes. And there are ways that you can start to create internal safety. And maybe we can talk a little bit more about what that is, but I I will also say it can be very difficult to truly heal when we are in the midst of crisis mm-hmm. because we're constantly in survival mode, needing right. to make sure that we're literally staying alive. And so all of our energy and effort and time and resources goes into maintaining life and <laughs> being alive. It can be much harder to do the bulk of the work while we're in crisis. Yeah. 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 I, I would add to that. Um, you know, we think about these various physiological states that we humans experience um, in in the service of our survival. So this this freeze collapse response um, is a really adaptive response for a mammal who's being attacked by a predator to kind of you know feign death. To um, in that experience, your body doesn't feel as much pain. You're kind of dissociating from the the experience. It, it's a really kind of merciful thing that evolution has has done for us. Um, and so, so like that serves a purpose. And I think when we talk about trauma, I, I want to also be very clear that we're not we're not saying that um, this is an illness or that, that there's mm-hmm. something kind of um, abnormal about this experience. That these are natural physiological responses um, in the service of our survival. And so, for trauma survivors to recognize that while that freeze collapse response in a, that kind of persisting sense of powerlessness. Um, isn't something that I would choose. The alternative is that I wouldn't be here today because I wouldn't have survived. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. when we talk about um, can I recover, resolve trauma, heal trauma while still inside of experiences that aren't safe for me, I think it's helpful to think about um, moving gradually, like, like Laura's saying, mm-hmm. um, taking small steps and intentional steps towards moving in and out of these various physiological states. So for instance, from a freeze collapse response, 
to move out of that and to, to feel safe and social and connected again, we have to go through this activated response mm-hmm. and to um, subtly but intentionally push back against doctrines that don't work for you, to stand up for yourself, to say no. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are all ways that, that lead us to um, feeling safe and strong and connected again uh, that may not re- kind of completely resolve that trauma that we've experienced, um, but it, those s- subtle small shifts become a resource for our nervous system, and we can build on that as we move forward. And so I think when, when, when Laura said, yes, and um, that's, <laughs> we're both recognizing that we can begin to do things in the service of, 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 of our survival, in the service of uh, moving through these um, physiological states where um, they're no longer useful for us now because I'm no longer in the experience, but my, but my body needs to know that I'm safe now. And so to push back, um, like in it's not just this story we tell ourselves, well, I'm an adult now and I can do what I want to do, so therefore I should feel okay. Um, we know that's just, it's just simply not how it works. We, we need to have that felt sense. And so um, to, um, to have the experience of, of saying what you need to say, um, pushing back, um, your nervous system begins to feel like it can trust you again. Um, it, it's, you're not trying to convince yourself that you're safe. You actually feel yeah. safe mm-hmm. in, in, in your felt sense. And so, um, yeah, so, so we can begin doing those, um, those small steps towards um, yeah. feeling safe again. Yeah. yeah. From a clinical perspective or just from the way in which you understand your lived experience or the, the experiences that you've heard or, or addressed in counseling, is there either an order of operations type of thing that spiritual abuse can lead to religious trauma or that spiritual abuse... Um, is a useful term in a different way because if someone is in the midst of something that is legitimately abusive then um, I don't want people to think that that anyone here in this conversation is counseling them to stay in that sort of thing Mm -hmm. sure for sure Sure. yeah if you if you guys could sort of address that from from your perspectives how that term is is applied or is useful um, mm-hmm. and distinct from religious trauma. Yeah, I, I, I think, um, you know, like, like Laura mentioned at the beginning, uh, the distinction between uh, the event that happened to you and then your, your body's response to that, um, you know, in, in, in some ways that's the difference between religious or spiritual abuse mm-hmm. and then the resulting trauma that may or may not, you know, be experienced after experiencing the abuse. Um and so, so yeah, I think we can look at, um, and, and, and I'll, I'll let Laura um, go a bit deeper into that that power and control. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these experiences where you are shamed into behaving a certain way, or you you aren't able to make your own choices. You're not led to trust yourself and to do what's right and best for you. Um, and and it's cloaked in this spiritual language, you know. Well, if you'd pray more or if you'd believe more or um, there must be something wrong with you if, if you're not having this experience that we think you should be having. And, and when that, that shame and kind of adversive control happens, um, th- that certainly can lead to trauma. Um, and it's important to point that out. I think that's um, some of the data we're hoping to um, gather from the adverse religious experiences, which could also be, you know, adverse spiritual experiences as well. Um, we're trying to kind of determine these component parts and how they function. Um, you know, what is it about that experience that, that was 
um, not okay for your nervous system. And in, in, you know, as we begin to collect data on that, uh, we'll have a better understanding of like mm -hmm. what things tend to lead to trauma versus, um, you know, things that um, maybe aren't as, as likely to be traumatizing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I oftentimes, when we talk about religious abuse is I, I use a lot of comparisons with intimate partner violence mm -hmm. or domestic violence. Um, there's a lot of crossover there in terms of how that dynamic looks, how it plays out. And one of the things that we know um, about that, about, you know, religious abuse or uh, intimate partner violence is that there's a lot of different kind of components to it that one thing in and of itself doesn't really feel that bad. You know, you go, oh, you know, you kind of minimize my experience or you told me I shouldn't have a relationship with these people who aren't in the church. And I guess I can kind of understand that and, and those sorts of things. But what we start to notice within religious abuse or what I call like religious power and control is that there's all of these experiences kind of stacked on top of each other that's you take a step back and you go, wow, like this is this is a system or a relationship that is um, controlling my experiences, um, having power and control over my life um, where I don't have autonomy. I don't have the ability to make decisions. I'm it's hard for me to get out. Um, there's economic and emotional control and isolation and, uh, you know, defining of who I am as a person. And I no longer have power and control over my life. It is subscribed or ascribed to somebody else or a system. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's that's what we start to notice with uh, with power and control or when we talk about religious abuse is that that is the underlying dynamic of abuse. That's at the foundation is one person or one system or one organization that says, I have the right to determine how you live your life. I can control the things that you do say, feel, think, uh, how you dress, how you act, uh, your sexuality, your gender, your finances. And it is okay for me to do that because I am in a position of power mm -hmm. and you must follow that. And that is abuse. But when you pull that apart you and you look at just one you know some of these little components or these little instances you it, it's easy to write those off mm -hmm. uh you go ah oh, it's not that bad or it seems a little bit weird but you know i can get over that and it's this kind of snowball effect that's happening mm -hmm. right yeah yeah marshall McLuhan has a he's he's a media scholar from the 60s but mm -hmm. he has mm -hmm. this great line that i i love it's he says environments are invisible <laughs> and like yeah. you know all those little things they they add mm. up for sure yeah when yeah. i think too with with any sort of abuse but especially when we're talking about religious abuse because i've gotten this uh comment from a lot of people is you know do, do i have to consciously was it do i have to intentionally be abusive in order for this to be abuse mm. and um i think it's important that people know that no <laughs> um when we grow up in an abusive or powered control dynamic situation we are taught ingrained or what some people would say is brainwashed to believe this is how you do life this is how you think this is how you talk these are the expectations and those sorts of things mm -hmm. so it is not uncommon that in a religiously abusive situation or a spiritually abusive situation that you would be abusing somebody and not be intentional or not conscious about it the difference between 
that and then somebody who's thoroughly an abusive person or abusive system is that once they know something different, they do different mm -hmm. and they take the appropriate uh, measures to remedy that. Um, and that can be really difficult. There's, there's a lot of ex-pastors who are grieving over the fact that I was harmed and then I caused a lot of harm. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's a really heavy burden to, to carry the difference though, between them and the system is that they've recognized it and they've gone, I, I will do the work to heal myself and to heal others. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's important to recognize also. You know, as you were as you were saying that, Laura, the um, kind of looking at that through the lens of intimate partner violence. Um, yeah. If we look at it also through the lens of you know developmental trauma, the, mm -hmm. the your caregiver, this this source of comfort and support and safety is also a source of of, of yeah. harm. Yeah. And we think about what that does to a nervous system. And I think a lot of times, folks who have experienced religious trauma. We'll, we'll, we'll say things like, well, it wasn't all bad, and I really appreciated mm -hmm. the community, and the people had my back and supported me. And in some ways, that makes it even worse, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because now I'm, I'm conflicted about, you know, I, you know I, may, I may stick around for longer than what's healthy or safe for me because I'm getting enough support. Um, I'm being pulled in. I think obviously this happens in intimate partner violence as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, no one just chooses to live with a raging asshole, right. but, but they aren't <laughs> right. always a raging asshole, yeah. right? They're, yeah. they're often the most mm -hmm. caring and loving and kind. And, and that's yeah. being, being able to recognize that, like, mm -hmm. um, do I have autonomy, power control in this situation? Can I make my own choices that feel right and safe for me? Or am I punished for that? Or am I, um, uh, are my access to resources limited because of that? And, um, and, and, and that, that can be very subtle and, and hard to detect. And, and I think it's, yeah. it, it's important to notice. And, and I think that's why um, in the work we're doing, we're hoping to, to, to shine a, a, a bit more of a light on that. Um, this doctrine in and of itself maybe isn't super harmful, but how it functions in this community mm -hmm. is just devastating to folks, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's going to, it will impact, you know, 30% of your congregation in this, you know, traumatizing way. And the yeah. rest are, are maybe they have enough external resources in their family or friends or whatever that it doesn't impact them. Mm -hmm. But we need to talk about like how it can impact folks and, and what can be done about that. just take a brief moment to kind of like define what trauma-informed means because you use that word and it is a it is a buzzword and I'm so glad that it is because it's bringing the what I would say correct attention onto trauma in terms of what it is and how that functions in our life with which then brings the attention to traumatized individuals in order to get them the help that they need um whether that is through social media or therapy or coaching or, or whatever that might look like. Mm -hmm. um, and so really when we talk about trauma informed, it's um, that we're able to view people um, 
by taking into account past traumas when we're seeking to understand them, as well as recognizing that um, trauma could be an underlying cause of other symptoms, including coping mechanisms or behaviors that have developed in order to deal with or navigate the world. And so um, simply put, it means like, you know, if you're working with somebody, whether that's in a therapeutic sense or coaching sense, or even as a Facebook moderator or defining what you put out there on social media, it's important to consider trauma as like a foundational reason for why somebody might do what they do or respond the way that they respond or how they navigate the world and the relationships, as well as symptoms that they're manifesting, whether that's psychological or physiological. Um, so I think that's important because you can be a trauma-informed clinician, but you can also be a trauma-informed human being. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's yeah. really important. We all can do that. And so when we look at that in a social media sense, uh, two things that come to mind are giving a lot of compassion and space for people's responses that maybe differ from yours, that maybe feel even a little bit triggering to realize that, gosh, this person is probably filtering things or talking about things through the lens of their own trauma. And what is the compassion and patience and, and ugh, I'll know it sounds Christianese, but the grace that I can give them as they're trying to navigate through something that maybe I haven't navigated yeah. because that feels too big or scary, or maybe I already have. And I feel like, Oh, you should already know that. Um, but it, that, that comes to mind is, is to be able to give a lot of compassion and, and space for multiple opinions and thoughts and, and all of those sorts of things. And I know I said I had two things, but the other one slipped my mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You, you know, Blake, when you, you mentioned kind of online communities, and, and I think one yeah. of the things um, that's worth pointing out is, is when you've experienced trauma inside of a community, um, it's really, really difficult, risky, scary, um, unsafe to be part of another community. Right. And I think oftentimes we, we, we have that experience of, um, you know, I was harmed by a group, I'll never be part of a group again, or we'll say, um, how I how I experienced trauma inside of that group, I'm going to um, kind of reenact that in another group. It's, it's often not intentional. But when we talked about trauma earlier, we said it's it's often this experience where I needed to do something to have a sense of completion or to resolve the experience. And if I wasn't able to tell my pastor that he's wrong, right, um, I didn't have the experience to speak forcefully to an authority figure. Mm -hmm. I will find another authority yeah. figure in my life. I will seek them out consciously or subconsciously to have that experience. And, and I think when, when I, um, I'm part of, you know, several, um, you know, online, you know, post-religious or ex-evangelical groups, and, and, and you'll see this pattern happen over and over and over again, um, where a person who has experienced trauma needs to be heard, they need to feel safe, mm -hmm. and will do things like, um, you have to say the words exactly correctly, you can't, you have to be very clear in how you speak, and you have, you, you can't, you know, this ideological purity, um, it, it's not so much that we care about being precise, as we care about, do I feel safe? And can I control this environment enough to feel safe? Right. Um, and, and I think that's often a trauma response. Um, it's not always, you know, sometimes people care about, you know, the words we use and how we speak to each other. And I think rightfully so, 
However, when that's when when that's required for us to feel safe as humans, um, that's probably an indication that we need to do some work around that. You know, what is it about my need to control this conversation that that feels so tied to my sense of safety in the world? Mm-hmm. And and so therefore, um, we often see folks, um, you know, kind of blow up inside of communities, or mm-hmm. you know, this community wasn't you know pure enough or safe enough or okay enough. And, and then they leave with a sense of like, will I ever find um, my people who get me and understand me and, and yeah. can I be, be safe enough? If we need that safety to come from an external source solely, mm-hmm. um, w- w- we likely will never find it um, to our satisfaction. Right. And, and that's where recognizing that a person's, you know, kind of reaction to an experience inside of a community um, might be um, a response to their their past trauma, and instead of saying like, how do we change this community to to um, to meet all of their needs, we might begin asking, what can we do as a community to help them feel safer, more connected, um, and and that's and, and also asking them, what do you need to feel safer, mm-hmm. stronger, more connected, and um, and we probably won't get there the way we tried to inside of religion where we had to believe the exact right Right. things and had to take it literally. And, you know, the truth was the important thing because again, if we look underneath that, um, folks who hold a belief strongly and defend it with their life um, often feel very terrified or afraid or not safe underneath that. If they can physiologically feel safe and okay, if we begin to address those underlying needs that they have as, as a human, um, then, their reaction and responses and, and what's necessary in the community um, is, is not is not quite as um, controlling or demanding. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that that's certainly how do you how do you address that as a moderator? Um, <laughs> hats off to you. <laughs> I know that is incredibly challenging. Mm-hmm. And again, yeah, having mm-hmm. the, the compassion and patience for that um, is, is important. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just speaking a little bit about that and how we we do our best to moderate and, and like we're human so that means we we certainly uh can make mistakes or do not do things perfectly but we do have sort of clear guidelines we and there are certain things that we do expect folks to affirm like the the space is queer affirming it's trans affirming like it centers people that groups that were marginalized in white evangelicalism in particular um, including people of color, all of the women, people of color, um, LGBTQ+, all, all of those things, um, and then preferring basically personal narrative over what mm-hmm. I tend to call like rhetorical dominance or mm-hmm. just someone's, yeah. someone having that be yeah. the sole answer. Uh, it's mm-hmm. much more of an agnostic space than an mm-hmm. atheist space. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, interesting, yeah. the interesting thing is, is that with such a wide and varied group, um, and just having so many, so many members, people that still lean lean religious, view the space as more non-religious, and the, mm-hmm. and vice yeah. versa. Mm-hmm. People that see it as right. non-religious sure. yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> see it as religious. And there might be some weird Facebook algorithm stuff that's vi- invisible to us that's happening there too. But there's there's so many different things to to keep in mind, and it's uh, we we do our best to make it a place where people can share and learn learn about other people that that have gone through similar similar things just because um as as you've met you've mentioned um it's 
can be very isolating. Uh, and anything we can do to to remove that is a positive thing overall, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think social media, It, you know, I, me- I think I mentioned this to you on a different call, Blake, but there's something really quite beautiful about it in terms of the community that it provides for people all over the world, really, mm-hmm. to feel connected that this experience that I'm having, I'm not the only one. Right. Um, and, and even though I started, I deconstructed many, many years ago, when I found some of these social media uh, communities, my healing took a different direction mm-hmm. it, it, to feel connected and to go, oh, whoa, you had that experience too. And like, I, I'm normal. <laughs> what I, well, I don't even know what normal means, but I felt normal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I think that social media can be particularly helpful in terms of connecting as part of healing from trauma is being able to find safe connection mm-hmm. and um, safe relationships. And that does not mean agreeing relationships. It does not mean that we have to agree with everything. It's that we can feel safe, like Brian was talking right. about. But I think it's important to realize, too, that trauma, just like just like trauma is subjective, healing can be very subjective, too. So potentially what is healing for me may be very triggering for you right? or vice versa. Absolutely. And so even being able to hold that space in um, social media communities or individual relationships that, you know, if I say, here's this thing that I'm processing through and here's what really helped, or I reframed it this way, somebody else might say, oh my God, that actually makes me feel so angry. And like, you are, you know, not validating my experience. And it's not the that anybody is trying to invalidate anybody's experience. We're all just walking this healing path as as best as we can. And so leaving space for our experiences can be different and that can be okay. And we can, um, we can maybe give each other the most generous assumption that we're not trying to be harmful and we're not trying to invalidate and we're not trying to be right or wrong. That's very fundamentalist, right, in our thinking. Mm-hmm. But going like, what would it look like to be curious and to hold space for other mm-hmm. people? Um, I think that's a really important kind of community to develop because that that then goes outside of the religious context that goes into our, into the rest of our world and our relationships and how we navigate humanity essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's very different than how most people grew up. Um, so leaving space for like, yeah, we're trying to talk about trauma without being traumatizing, but it's going to traumatize some people because what's traumatic to you may or may not be to me. And this is healing for you, but triggering to me. So we, there has to be some space left in there for that. Yeah. 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 As you were saying that, Laura, I was thinking about, um, you know, I've run some groups before and, and one of the, the kind of guidelines is that we don't give advice. Um, and, mm. and, and I think that's, that's a difficult thing for us humans because you're like, no, but if you do it this way, you'll be better. And, <laughs> and, and, and I think when it comes to trauma, especially, we don't want your advice. We don't want you to tell us, you know, that we're wrong or how to do it the correct way. Um, we want to know that that you see me, that you hear me, that you believe me. Mm-hmm. And when we begin to approach each other in that way inside of a group, that creates a context. And I think so much of, of the therapeutic work, and as Laura was just mentioning, this context of safety, this context of, of support, this context of um, I'm here for you, I, I, I believe you, I hear you, um, I see you. And I think if, if that becomes a focus in a, in a community, in a group, as opposed to 
you know, well, you're wrong and this is why you're wrong, or let me tell you what worked for me and how it should work <laughs> for you. We're just like, no, like I, I see you. And, and, and so often um, that in and of itself um, is incredibly powerful and healing for someone because to be seen and to be heard, to be understood is what, what we need to begin to trust ourselves again, to, to feel like um, I'm, I'm not you know, making this up, this is actually happening to me to, to feel validated. And, and so I think as much as we can, of course, we can't always insist on that in, in a larger online community, um, but to model that, to encourage that, like this is not a space for advice giving, it's for sharing your experience, your story, and for other people to say, yeah, I, I validate that, I see that, I hear that. Yeah. So my final question for you is for people that are wanting to take steps to address trauma, religious trauma in particular, what are your recommendations for them in, in finding a counselor or a coach or a therapist and, and what people can do to, to find the resources that they need when they decide that they want to seek mm -hmm. professional help? I think the most important thing for me, and, and there's this idea that's out there that you need to find a secular therapist, mm -hmm. um, especially if you're going through a deconversion, deconstruction process, um, because a religious therapist could be, you know, um, traumatizing to you or or could make it difficult for you to to share your experience. And 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 I and I think that's probably true for a lot of folks, and it's something to consider. However, if I were to choose between a secular therapist who may or may not have a lot of training and experience in trauma or a progressive Christian therapist who really knows their trauma um, well and, and can um, provide that resource for me. Um, and I guess speaking from personal experience, um, I, I've worked with secular therapists as well as a religious therapist. And um, some of the most profound and impactful work that I've done with my own trauma has been with uh, a, a religious therapist. Um, he doesn't, it's not part of the work we do. We're focusing on the nervous system. We're focusing on what my body needs to feel safe and okay in the world. Mm -hmm. And so religion doesn't come into that, although he validates my experience with, with religious trauma and is, is able to work with that and acknowledge that. And so I, I think for us to, um, to recognize that the most important piece is that trauma-informed, mm -hmm. someone who has experience with trauma, our goal as the Religious Trauma Institute is to connect with therapists who have that trauma background. Um, we don't assume that because you're secular that you're, uh, you know, qualifying to work with trauma. We, we assume that the most important mm -hmm. piece is that you have the, the training in the background. Ideally, in a perfect world, you would find, you know, the therapist who had a similar life experience and understands, you know, yeah. what you've gone through and it also has the skills and training to help you through that trauma um, but I, I don't want to dissuade folks from seeking mm -hmm. out highly qualified trauma therapists, mm -hmm. even if they don't know whether they're secular or not, or or even if they, um, you know, identify as religious. Um, mm -hmm. And and I know that's maybe a, a controversial thing to say or an unpopular thing to say because there's so much focus in the the, the post theist community mm -hmm. on like, well, you need to like just ditch religion altogether. If, if your therapist believes in God, well, then how good can they be? Um, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 I'll, and I'll just tell you straight up that they can be pretty damn good because yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can from personal experience, you know? And so, um, yeah, so I, I think um, that trauma-informed, a person who has that background and experience, like that's just so, so important. Yeah. 
And even adding to that, I, I'm one of the conversations I'm trying to navigate a little bit on my Instagram page is trauma-informed and trauma-trained. Yes. So there's a difference mm-hmm. between the two of those. You can be a trauma-informed person, clinician mm-hmm. that is able to recognize, hey, this person is is you know acting out of their trauma. Um, but a trauma-trained person mm-hmm. is somebody who goes, hey, you're acting out of your trauma and I know what to do and I'm trained in that to help you regulate your nervous system to help you get you back into the room because you're dissociating. So finding, like Brian is saying, finding somebody who has training in trauma modalities, and I'm very partial to body-based trauma modalities, but you know, that's up for grabs. (laughs) Um, But finding somebody who has that training and is willing then to say like, yes, I'm happy to learn about religious trauma, whether that is Connecting to uh, the Religious Trauma Institute and doing some courses, you know, like I said earlier, I developed a manual specifically for clinicians to say, like, if you're working with a religious trauma client, like, here's kind of how you're going to navigate it. This is what it really is. I think that's important. And and then also, if you have this uh, trauma-informed and trauma-trained clinician, it's mostly that they would validate your experience, that they would help you feel safe in that. It's not that they have to agree and their experience is the same as yours, but that you would feel like I can come into this space and be able to tell you what my experience is and you're not going to question that and you're not going to um, try to get me back on board or, you right. know, um, like missionary therapy, <laughs> yeah. that sort of yeah. thing. Um, and, and really being able to go like, do I feel safe with this individual? Um, because what we know from research is that so much of the ability to heal is the feeling of safety and connection with an individual, like a therapist potentially, where they can hold that space and you are free to show up however you need to. And they're just there, they're bearing witness and they're helping you navigate through that. And so that I would say is very, very important to consider. Mm -hmm. Um, if, if going to a therapist is something that is both important to you and feasible. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And it's a great note to close this conversation. I'm very thankful for both of you, uh, sharing all of your insight and experience and everything related to trauma, as well as your personal stories. Where can people find out more about the Religious Trauma Institute as well as whatever else both of you are up to individually online or elsewhere? Feel free to plug. Um, well, the Religious Trauma Institute is on social media. We're working on, you know, kind of getting their content out there. So on Instagram and Facebook, which is probably where we're the most active, you can just look us up. Uh, our handle is Religious Trauma Institute. And then we're getting there with Twitter. Um, and that our handle there is just Religious Trauma. We also have um, a website, which is religioustraumainstitute.com. Mm-hmm. And so that's where you can sign up for um, email updates. You can go and take that survey of the adverse religious experiences. Uh, Brian and I also uh, hosted a seminar a few months back on religious trauma and the nervous system. And that is also available to people for free. And we will be continuing to update our site and more trainings and and all the things that we're we've got yeah. in the works that will happen we're getting there <laughs> great so uh that's that's us as the religious trauma institute or maybe brian you want to add to that 
Yeah, no, I think that that's perfect. Um, as far as our vision for the future, you know, we're in, we'll be developing these clinical trainings as well as psychoeducational workshops for survivors mm -hmm. and advocates and folks who are interested in this topic, um, as well as um, we, we are beginning to do some of our own um, laying the, the foundation for some research. Um, the Adverse Religious Experiences um, survey that we have out there um, is not a research um, project in and of itself, but it will inform how future research, um, the direction that that, that it goes. Mm. And, and so we'll be collaborating with um, graduate students and um, academic researchers who are wanting to um, explore this topic a bit more. Um, and also one of our goals is to um, provide a harm reduction um, awareness and resources for religious leaders and communities. Yeah. Um, it's That's to, great. To, to recognize that this isn't this us versus them adversarial kind of, um, you know, relationship, but how can we make communities and organizations safer for humans? Because our goal in the end is to reduce human suffering. And um, we can probably do that more effectively by partnering with and connecting with and not isolating ourselves from um, religious communities who, who can and maybe even want to do better, but they don't, they don't interface with and connect with folks who have left um, mm -hmm. Because they've kind of, you know, for various reasons, um, they're not in, in communication. And mm -hmm. so for us to say, this is what we're learning, this is what we're finding, um, if you were to make these small changes in your organization, it would have a profound impact on, 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 on the safety and well-being of your members. Um, and so like that's, that's maybe stage three of, of our, our growth plan, uh, but it's something that we're wanting to focus on. Um, we don't see ourselves as being anti-religious. Um, we, we recognize that religion can be a source of strength and, and, and connection for some folks, and it can also be a source of suffering. We want to acknowledge why that is, what are the component pieces of that, and how can we do better? And so um, our goal is to, um, yeah, just really bring awareness to this topic as well as to provide um, you know, research and clinical trainings to um, provide better support for individuals who have experienced it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Wow. Well, I'm excited to see what what's on the horizons uh, for the institute and for and for both of you, uh, Brian, Laura. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you thank so much. You it's so been, much. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you.